Hi, I'm Michael McKenzie. Welcome to RN First Bite. And today I'm sitting in front of a live audience at one of a series of events called Wine Day Out. This is the Gasworks Theatre in South Melbourne. It's a turn of last century high ceilinged room that used to house heavy machinery and now has to cope with actors, performers and the wine industry. I wonder which it prefers. When we read recommendations of what wine to buy, there's an implicit trust that the points awarded, the glowing terms that are used and the research that's been done is all for our benefit, the consumer, so that we can make an informed choice. But what if that trust is misplaced? What if there's other forces at play? Are we still getting a true picture of what's on offer? Over the next half hour, we discuss what happens inside an industry where favourable comment and advertising revenue occupy the same space. And the people who write about the wine can also be selling the wine and even helping the winemaker launch it in the first place. And the man who starts this conversation and fears for his future employment is sitting right next to me. He's award-winning wine writer and journalist, Max Allen. <laughs> Max is a wine columnist for The Weekend Australian and wine editor for Australian Gourmet Traveller magazine. He's also a semi-regular guest on RN First Bite. And Max, you approached me and said, Michael... There's something I want to get off my chest. So we're all here. What is it? I've been waiting to get this off my chest for years. I've been worried and frustrated that for quite a long time, the wine media, writers, editors, publishers, have not been doing a good enough job of being transparent about how wine content reaches the page or the screen. Well, let's give an example of your own mea culpa, something you felt uncomfortable about, hosting an event for whom? It's very difficult to make a living out of writing about wine. Most of us are also involved working in or around the wine industry. So there's plenty of wine writers that also work for retailers, that do marketing, that do promotional work, um, that do consulting. And this is not always declared. For example, there's a winery that I've written about quite often because I think what they're doing is fabulous for Australian wine. It's the Chalmers family. They've got a, a label. They grow grapes, very well-known viticulturists. And once, a few years ago, I was paid by that family to host a wine dinner for them. And I, subsequent to that event, did not declare that I had been paid by that winery on that occasion. When you wrote about the event... I didn't write about the event, but subsequently writing about their wines, I think, having taken money from the winery, having been paid, ha having the winery as my client, mm. I think the reader deserved to hear about that in subsequent times that I wrote about the winery. This is a small start to a much wider conversation we're about to have. And in fact, Max Allen, you started to inquire by asking questions and getting answers via email and phone with a range of contacts you have inside the industry, whether they be producers or publishers or writers. And one of the people you spoke to is someone who owns an independent wine store, imports wine, and also writes about it monthly in the Australian Financial Review. His name is Philip Rich, and I happened to chance upon Philip Rich when I was on the streets of South Melbourne 
talking to other people, just members of the public, about wine. And here's what we talked about. Is there any conflict in your mind between reviewing and writing about wine and selling wine? Um, it's a good question. It's something that I've thought about a lot over the years. Um, and I suppose you could argue if there's a perceived conflict of interest, then there is a conflict of interest. So for me, it's always been about how I handle that conflict of interest. I mean, I obviously, you know, um, I, I've never, I've never have, and I wouldn't review wines that we import. Uh, all the wines I ever reviewed or write about are things that other people distribute and import. Not so none of the wines you write about are inside the shop? They are inside the store. So yes, I do write about wines that we sell. So you could argue there's a conflict there, except I don't have any allegiances to any distributors. I don't have any allegiances financially to, except that I buy wine. I don't have any, I'm not paid for by any wine companies. Um, it stands to reason that if I like a wine enough to want to write about it, it's sort of logical that we would sell them in the store. Um, one of the things that Max raised was, you know, is there a disclosure in my column about that I work for Prince Wine Store? And that's something I've thought about a lot too over the years. And my attitude to that is, if we do go down the path of writing more Philip Rich is a wine buyer or partner at Prince Wine Store, then that to me looks more like um, self-promotion, that I'm using the column to promote my business, which I'm not. If we're talking about perception, though, of conflict yes. of interest, couldn't there be potentially a situation occurring where you've got a line of wine in your store that you think should be selling better than it is and you want to get it off the floor okay, and you could be writing about it to help that happen? That's the perceived conflict. That's never happened. I would never do that. But yes, you So trust me. Essentially, yes. What's your sense of the, the kind of levels of transparency there are throughout the industry when it comes to those who write, those who review, and the interests they may have in the wines they're talking about? Yeah, I, if you argue that I have a conflict, I think there are greater conflicts out there, uh, ones where uh, people are reviewing wines on the same page that there are major advertisers selling those wines so you know i think that's a you think that's a, a beyond the line I, I don't know if it's beyond the line but you know people have again it's it's relatively transparent if someone's writing a column and there's an ad next to it from dan's wherever well, selling, it's only transparent if it's disclosed well yes yes um well i suppose if someone's writing a review about a wine and it's advertised on the same page people will draw their own conclusions there are now a number of newspapers that have associations with major wine retailers Epicure and Age have one exclusively now. Australian, the Australian where Max writes for has one, maybe not for his column. Well, you may know that in the industry, no, but no. does the wider public actually appreciate that? Perhaps not. Perhaps not. So there's an argument there that maybe, that maybe there should be more disclosure than what there is currently. Uh, Philip there was raising some points that obviously he has been wrestling with himself and he's talked to his editor about. Max, you've spoken to Philip's editor as well. What did she say? First of all, she said that in general, declarations are absolutely the right thing to do. For example, if a travel writer is flown somewhere exotic to write about a resort or something, of course there'll be a declaration that so-and-so was flown by an airline or a travel company. And she said that actually maybe in the future she should change the policy to be more consistent with that. She said that wine writers tend to come from outside the journalist background. They tend to be specialists in their field, experts in wine, therefore not trained journalists, and they're not on staff. So they're not raised in the culture of newspapers where declaration is kind of drummed into you from an, from an early age. I think it's also really worth pointing out, Philip's tone there is the tone that I've heard over and over again behind closed doors when writers get together, when winemakers get together, when retailers get together. They whinge about this stuff a lot. But they'd say... Of course, we can't say this out loud because we're frightened. 
The wine industry is frightened of offending the wine media because they rely on them to promote their product, and the wine media are frightened of offending the wine industry because they rely on the industry for freebies and favours. Uh, next to you is someone who is sharing the stage with you in a very brave move, and that's Mike Benny. Mike is a... <laughs> Mike and Max are now holding hands for security. Mike Benny is a freelance wine and drinks writer and journalist. He's a wine judge and a presenter based in Sydney. He writes for Australian Gourmet Traveller Wine Magazine. He's also editor-at-large and contributor to the online wine commentary website called Winefront. His work has appeared in many local and overseas publications. And in 2013, Mike was named Digital Wine Communicator of the Year. You can clap that, I think. Now they've clapped, Mike. Yes. Tell us what you've done wrong. The, the most potent example would be writing advertorial, and I sort of flushed that out of the system as my time has been increasingly kept with what I'd call more professional endeavours in journalism. Just explain to people outside the industry what advertorial means. So advertorial is content that effectively is written by a copywriter or writing professional that basically is advertising but dressed up as editorial. And uh, in my circumstances, it's been in some of the publications that I'm engaged as a freelance writer already. So immediately there may be things that I've written that are under byline, but then later on in the magazine will be these advertorial pieces in which I'll have written things about wineries in an advertising capacity. Such as? Such as writing for the Australian First Families of Wine, an organisation and marketing nexus of 12 producers uh, of old family wine producers in Australia. Uh, and I've written for Australian Gourmet Traveller Wine some content for them which would have assisted some advertising funding for the magazine. And did you put your name to that piece of writing? No, I did not. Why? I felt that in my capacity as a freelance journalist that the separation of freelance journalism was far away enough from a copywriting service. So at the time I felt that if I put byline to advertorial it would compromise my integrity. But if I removed my byline from advertorial that I have a more clear conscience about a separation of what would be pure play writing versus opinion writing, which I'm paid for by Australian Gourmet Travel Wine. Max, would you have done what Mike's done? No, I wouldn't. And this goes back to what Philip was talking about before, is that because there is no code of conduct, because we are not trained journalists and we don't have this drummed into us, we have to abide by our own code. And that's Mike's code. Mine is different. I was approached recently by a wine regional association to do some promotional work for them. I thought about it because it was good money uh, and eventually declined because I wasn't comfortable providing copy and not putting my name to it. Why does it matter whether you do or you don't disclose those interests? I mean, does it really impact on the quality of the journalism that you're putting out to the readers of your product? Look, I think that um, the integrity of somebody who is acting as a critic is imperative. And I think that without integrity, there really isn't a, a way to put credence in what people are saying. Well, one of the reasons why people buy wine is because they look at the marketing, they look at the label, and they do read, I think, on the front of labels and in the in-store advertising about points. Now, it's usually out of 100. So, Mike, if I go into a store where it says, and it might be a Dan Murphy's or one of the big retails, and, and it says on the front of a case of wine, this wine got 97 points at the Royal Queensland Wine Show, it must be quality, surely. Wine shows were originally set up to help producers improve the breed. This is a mantra that is 
echoed throughout wine shows in Australia. What they're now increasingly doing is becoming quasi-critics. What's happened is, is that the movement away from medals are now being pinpointed as scores, which aligns with critics. A quaint example from the recent Royal Queensland Wine Show is that there was Lindemann's Bin 85 Pinot Grigio 2014. It retails for around $7. It was given a 96-point score. The top wine of the entire show was a 97-point wine. So what you've got is effectively a wine that did very well in its class, mm. being shunted up to a point score of 96. And that $7 wine is now only one point behind the winning wine of the show, and as such is now advertisable as a 96-point wine from the Royal Queensland Wine Show stuck on a label. And it's, it's advertised as such. It's advertised as such in retailers across Australia. And who funds these wine shows? Wine shows are funded by producers, but increasingly by retailers. So Dan Murphy's would underwrite some of these wine shows? Dan Murphy's certainly underwrites several wine shows and also sponsors trophies across uh, a majority of wine shows in Australia. You're listening to RN First Bite. We're coming to you from the Gasworks Theatre in South Melbourne where we're part of Wine Day Out and we're talking about the ethics of wine writing and its relationship with the wine industry and wine retailers. To our panel now, because we've got two journos who've basically spilled their beans, and the first person I'd like to talk to in our panel is Angie Bradbury. Angie is the chair of Wine Communicators of Australia. It's a body whose members include journalists and winemakers, hospitality workers, retailers. Angie, are you comfortable with how the wine industry operates in its relationships with the media and retailers? No. Why? Well, for a number of reasons, and I think that both Max and Mike have pointed them out. And the first one being around how the product that's reviewed or commented on actually gets into the hands of the reviewers. So unlike a scenario in the restaurant reviewing world where the publisher is paying the cost of the dinner and there's the, therefore the independence in that factor. And often the reviewer in restaurants goes in undercover. Unannounced and uncovered. In the wine industry, it has propped up for many, many years this habit of sending all our new releases to journos, unsolicited, mind you. So that happens. And then most of the time, the visit to the winery, that masterclass experience, is funded by the winery. But what's wrong with that? Well, I think it creates this issue of fear that, that Max talked about before and this sort of like codependency that we now have in that scenario. And I don't think the consumer or the reader of media in all its forms, whether that's traditional media or new media, understand that codependent relationship that now exists between wine producers and wine media. The winery stops sending the product... The journos don't have anything to review. They have no content to put into their magazine, their paper, their website, their blog. The bigger issue is that we also have retailers, um, particularly the big retailers, let's say Dan Murphy's, and whether it's through their Fine Wine Buyer's Guide or Vintage Sellers through Sellapress, that are publishing magazines, glossy magazines, inserting them in papers, delivering them to your mailbox, giving them to you when you walk into the store, with their panel reviewing wine and putting all this content in there that is 100% funded by the wineries that feature in that publication. But while we're talking about the ethics of what's going on here inside the industry, also on our panel today is Dr Dennis Muller. Dennis has worked as a journalist for 27 years, including assistant editor at the Sydney Morning Herald and associate editor at The Age. Dr Muller teaches media ethics at the Centre for Advancing Journalism, and his most recent publication is Journalism Ethics for the digital age, and it's a damn good read. Dennis, if you were editing a publication where Max Allen, Mike Benny and Philip Rich were working for you, 
what action would you take? The first thing is I would require full disclosure to me as the editor. That was, in fact, the requirement at the age when I was associate editor there. I had to disclose my financial interest to the editor and it was understood that failure to do so was a sackable offence. So that would be my first step. Secondly, I would require that when they did publish a, a review that there was a footnote saying that uh, Mike Benny or Max Allen has whatever interests are relevant to, to the review. And thirdly, I've been listening to, with interest to the sort of embeddedness of these interests. And sometimes when the interests are so embedded, simple disclosure is not enough. And so in those circumstances, I would be placing boundaries around what these guys could write about. Such as? Such as uh, what sort of brands or what sort of companies or wineries or other interests that them, where the interest was so embedded that I couldn't be sure that they could, with the best will in the world, separate their private interests from their public duty. Now, for me, we're relying on these people not for news, not for facts that, that the readers can, in a sense, assess for themselves, but we're relying on them for their expert opinion. And they're not obliged to put in their commentary their reasons for saying that, the, um, that this wine is better than that. They simply say it is because it tastes like this or something. So where we're relying on expert opinion or commentary, the contract, the duty, if you like, on the journalist for disclosure is heavier than it is in news coverage. Would you therefore say, just quickly, that from the scenarios that have been painted for you in this conversation so far, that this would constitute, in your eyes, unethical practice? It certainly would, and I would be deeply uncomfortable if I were editor of the Financial Review, deeply uncomfortable with the situation that I've heard outlined today. Um, and it's not to do with the integrity of the individual. It's a matter of principle. And the other thing I've heard is that Max and Mike have come to two different conclusions mm. because there's no code. Well, a, a good job for the Wine Communicators Association would be to sit down and set out a code and though everyone would at least have some starting points. Max, I'm going to come back to you first. You had some concerns, as you've outlined, about the lack of disclosure to the public about who's doing what in wine writing, what's paid advertorial and the pressure put on winemakers. Because what I'm talking about here is a supplement that you've got here on the table. It comes with one of the most read wine magazines in Australia, which is James Halliday's Wine Companion. What's your issue with this supplement? This, I believe, is an example of that boundary blurring. Uh, because as far as I can see, and I've poured over this, and correct me if I'm wrong, as far as I can see, the word advertorial does not appear on this supplement. On the front cover it says, Wow Factor Whites, 2014. Now, I know that this supplement was put together, effectively funded, through money paid by the wineries featured in the supplement. After the review and the score has been arrived at, the advertising department approach the wineries. They say, you have received this score and favourable review. If you pay a certain amount, which is, I believe, somewhere between $1,000 and $2,000, you get a full page to yourself uh, with the review and the score and a little bit of extra blurb about yourself and a lovely bottle shot. Now, we know that these things make a difference to sales. 
Talk to any winemaker and they will tell you that regular scores in the 90s help build a brand. Mm -hmm. So if you're a winemaker and you're approaching a restaurant or a distributor and you say, I want you to distribute my wine, the the first thing that the distributor or the restaurant will do in many cases is look at your scores. Oh, 93, 94, 95. Wonderful. I'll take you on as, as... And then higher scores than that, 96 plus, absolutely have an impact on sales. We know this. So if you're in the company of other winemakers who've been favourably reviewed in that kind of score level by James Halliday in the supplement, that's great exposure. So let's take that to the publisher now. That's Simon McEwen. Simon's had 20 years' experience in publishing roles both here and in the UK, and he now heads up the consumer division of Hardy Grant Media, responsible for numerous mastheads, including the James Halliday Wine Companion. And Simon, why don't you disclose that the only reason these highly rated wines appear in the supplement is because the winemaker had to pay you to put them there? Can I just establish, is this, are you saying this is advertorial? I'm saying it's advertorial, yep. um, but also I've seen an email from the advertising department to one winery concern okay. that explicitly calls it advertorial. All right, okay. Um, we do do advertorials in the magazine, um, in the latest issue, which is out now, at all good news agents and a lot of bad ones as well. The, you um, can do that if you like, but at the same time, have you declared their advertorials in there? Yes, we declare their advertorials. So, so why haven't you declared feature. them here? Why so, haven't you declared them on, in uh, this supplement? Because with the supplement, we go to James with an idea of what the framework is and the specifications um, for the wines that we would like to feature. And then we get that from James's database. James supplies the wines to us, uh, the wine uh, reviews and tasting and, um, and scores to us. And then we then approach the advertisers to see if they would like to promote in this supplement. You approach the winemakers? Uh, well, we, we approach the, the winemakers to see if they want to support this particular promotion. And if, they say, if they say we're not prepared to pay, for the sake of argument, $1,000 yes. uh, to put our rated wine by yep. James Halliday into your supplement, yep. it doesn't go in, does it? It doesn't go in, no. So that's but it still goes onto our database and it still can actually be promoted in a future issue of the magazine. It will still feature in the book and also if a winery's got a licence, they can use the tasting note in their own promotional material. So there's no penalisation. Well, I suppose the other thing is you can't buy your way into this supplement. Once we've decided what the criteria is, you can't buy your way in, and I, th- I think that's quite a clear distinction between advertorial well, and editorial. Well, can I, can I challenge you on that and say, well, in fact, you are buying your way in, because once you've been judged as being worthy of the supplement, then you have to pay for your inclusion. But the selection criteria has already been established, and that's the key difference. But one of the selection criteria, Simon, is yeah. paying. Well, no, no, we've made the selection already, I suppose. That's the, <laughs> we've, we've actually got a pool of uh, editorial that we're looking to promote, and I suppose that's the, the, the key distinction for us. Does Hardy Grant have these kind of conversations we're having now? We have over the last week, since uh, Max's email. Which um, seems indicative, doesn't it, because it seems everybody in the last week has yeah. been having this conversation in the industry since Max raised it. I think it's a, it has been an important point. I think um, one of the issues that Max did raise about advertorials is quite interesting, because I didn't realise that... Um, other writers, um, freelance journalists have actually been writing advertorials. Certainly in James Halliday's Wine Companion, we actually use internal writers to do those um, and we use our own editors. So we would never kind of try and compromise a, a journalist to write those kind of things. Angie Bradbury, you told me on the phone that consumers are the victims in all this. What do you mean by that? 
restaurant reviews say this restaurant is fantastic, this restaurant is rubbish and consumers get this feeling and this sentiment between good and bad and therefore they're reading reviews, movie reviews, book reviews to make decisions about well I think that's rubbish or I think that's great. When do you ever read a review of a wine that says this is rubbish? Dennis Muller, what do you think the industry needs to do if it's not going to be mistrusted by the consumers it serves? I think they have to uh, make those disclosures that I talked about, I, and I think that's just fundamental. May I say also that um, there were some other examples we wanted to raise in this forum here today, but because of threats of legal action, we've decided not to do that. But I think that shows that there's a lot of people's reputations at stake when it comes to some of the issues we're touching on. Simon, as a publisher, do you think there is an issue? No, I, I think actually the, the code of conduct discussion is a really valid one, actually. Um, and um, I'd be keen to probably talk to James about that and see where he would uh, like to take that. Max Allen, this is where we began with you. Now we're back with you. Has this session been a step in the right direction? I hope so. <laughs> uh, as I say, I just wanted to get this all off my chest because I've been worrying about these things for a long time. Uh, and, and now I have. I promise not to talk about it for at least a week. <laughs> but I mean, I, I think the, the, moving on from here, what the thing that interests me is uh, the traditional media is, is under threat from digital media and from a, a fracturing of, of medias. Um, and the one thing that may ensure sustainability of the wine media is that we retain our credibility and integrity. And that's why this worries me, because I think that standards need to be maintained so that those people who are going out there into the world and saying, I, I have an opinion on something and I would like you to, to trust my, my opinion, I'd like you to take my opinion on board, must have credibility. And if we don't, then they will, we, will be, we will be shoved aside in favour of easy, free content. I'd like to thank Max Allen, Mike Benny, Philip Rich, Dennis Muller, Angie Bradbury and Simon McEwen for their honesty and their insights. And a big thank you too to Wine Day Out and Dan Sims for letting us in the door. You can download this audio from the RN First Bite website unless our lawyers say we can't. So thank you very much for coming. This program was technically produced by Mark Veer, and that's it for this week. But before I go, thank you to the more than 1,200 people who voted in our food labelling poll. Results are in, and the winner is the Health Star label system, followed by the traffic lights, and lastly, the microscopic nutrition panel we already have on the back. Exact breakdowns are on our website. You can take a look. I'm Michael McKenzie. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>